created everything. So that's what we've gone, what we've seen so far. But now we're going to look into the topic of God's sovereign purposes. What are God's purposes for His creation? Uh, what does He want with the universe that we're in? Especially, what does He want with humanity that He created? What 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 did He uh, create us for? So that's what we're talking about: His purposes, and that's a relevant question because if we know what the answer is then we know what our own lives should be about. Um, what could be better than to live in accord with what God wants for us, what he designed us to do? If we know that, then we know what it looks like to fulfill our purpose um, and um, to be fully human. So that's what we're looking into today. And we find the central answer to the question in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. We'll branch out from there to some other texts as we need to. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then I'll pray. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Lots of uh, amazing truths packed into a short few sentences there, Lord, and we ask You to give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to receive it. This morning we want to see what it was that Paul was excited about, why he went on and on, not only here, but all the way to verse 14, just declaring your praises for all your spiritual blessings. And so give us some insight into that this morning. Help us to see what he saw to encourage us, to kindle belief in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're asking the question, what are God's sovereign purposes for his creation. So I'm going to name two, and then at the end we're going to tie them together into one statement, and we'll talk about the implications. So here's the first purpose of God that we see in our text. It's God's purpose is to save a people from their sins. That's what he wants to do. He wants to save a people from their sins. We see it in verses 3 and 4. Paul starts with verse 3, uh, praising God, um, for all the blessings, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he says. The us there, because he's writing this to a church, is believers in Jesus Christ. He calls them the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That means Christians, people who have genuinely put their faith in Jesus as Savior. And so he starts out by praising God for these blessings, and then in verses 4 and 5, he goes on to expand on what those spiritual blessings are. What's he talking about when he says that? And he's going to keep on going all the way to verse 14. But the first one that comes to his mind is stated and then restated this way, uh, 
He says, God chose us believers to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption. And then he says at the end of verse 5 that God did this according to the purpose of his will, meaning this is what God wanted to bring about. He wanted to make us holy and blameless before him. He wanted to adopt us. And so that's the purpose of his will. That's the thing he's motivated to do. And we can say it this way, which I'll explain, is that he wants to have a multitude of people whose sins are forgiven and who are in an intimate, joyful relationship with him. That's what he wants. He wants a holy and blameless people, sins forgiven, whom he will treat as his own adopted children. Now, to appreciate that, we have to have some backstory. Uh, we need to go back to what happened in Genesis at the beginning of humanity's story. We go back to Genesis 1, and we realize that after God created all things, including man and woman, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's Genesis 1.31. So the universe and the world were very good, and the people were very good. Adam and Eve were sinless. They did nothing wrong. And God was with them in this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden. There was this harmonious and joyful and wonderful relationship between creator and the creation, between God and man. But that didn't last very long. <laughs> Um, God didn't place any restrictions on Adam and Eve except just one. He said, don't eat the fruit from a certain tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17. But they did. They did eat from it, which was the first sin. And they did die. Not physically immediately, though that would happen later, but their death was a spiritual death. They became estranged from God separated from him, separated from his favor. They were condemned to suffer the consequences for their sin. So they were cast out of the garden and humanity has inherited their guilt and their ways of disobedience. So that by the time of Paul's writing, he was able to say in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one, and the wages of sin is death. So there's a spiritual death of separation from God that leads to a physical death, and then that leads to what the book of Revelation calls the second death, which is God's eternal judgment for our rebellion against him. So that's the bad news part of the backstory behind what Paul's writing here, but there's the good news. And the good news is God wants to save a people from the judgment that we deserve. He wants to save us from the wreckage that we made out of the world and out of our lives by rebelling against God. He's decided that he's not going to let all of humanity end up like that. He's chosen some to be holy and blameless before him, it says. Forgiven their sins and counted as sinless. He's going to restore that and to be adopted as his own sons, as his own beloved children. He's going to remove the separation. The peace is going to be restored. There will be a people who are once again welcomed into God's favor forever and ever. That's what God wants. But to do that, something had to be done to make that forgiveness and that restoration possible. 
And that's why God sent his son into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says we are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That is through what Jesus did. And that's what the gospel is all about. Jesus succeeded where we failed. He lived the completely sinless life. He really was holy and blameless before God. And then in this act of supreme self-sacrifice, he died for our sins on the cross. He took on himself the blame and the punishment that we deserve. And God's promise is that all who believe that, who trust Jesus as Savior, will receive Jesus' record of perfect sinlessness before God. You become holy and blameless before Him. Not that we stop sinning completely. We're going to keep on doing that. We don't change in the way we behave overnight, but we are counted holy and blameless before Him. He credits it to our account. He says, as far as I'm concerned, it's done. You're good to go. I've already taken care of all your sins. And then the fullness of this promise is resurrection to eternal life because that's what he did with Jesus too. He rose him from the dead in an immortal body and that's a a, a forerunner, a foretaste of what he's going to do for all who know him, who all who are adopted into his family. So that's the backstory behind Ephesians 1. What's the purpose of God's will for humanity? His purpose is to save a people from their sins. And you will be saved. You will be treated as his own beloved son or daughter if you believe in Jesus. So believe. (laughs) Believe, friends. Believe that this is true. That he sent his son to do that for you. Just receive the adoption. Receive the, the, the... blessing of being forgiven all your sins and being counted as righteous. That's all just received through faith, through belief. And so he invites us all to do that. Uh, For the first time or the hundredth time, just keep refreshing your memory that that's what God does. Uh, That's what he wants done in your life. So receive that invitation. Now, before we leave this point, we need to deal with two words that are used here describing this process of God saving people. The words are chose and predestined. Very important words. God chose us in Him, that is, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, and He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, that's the part of the passage that doesn't sit right with a lot of people. Because it says that if you become a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's because God chose for you to do that before you were born. He chose us before the foundation of the world, it says. He predestined us for adoption, meaning he assigned a destiny to us in advance that we would become his children. Before you were born, in fact, before the universe was created, God had already decided who it was that he would save, who he would adopt. We, we talked about it last week. That God, well, We talked about what was God doing before the foundation of the world? What was he doing before creation? And we had our answer in John 17, 24, where Jesus said to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
So from all eternity, God was a father loving his son. And now we see something else God was doing before the foundation of the world. He was planning to bring others into that love that he had for his own son. He had already picked names of individual people that he was going to adopt and bring into this sphere of love that exists in the Trinity. And the reason a lot of people have a problem with this is because it sounds unfair and it sounds like we have no say in the matter. Some think it makes God seem like this cruel tyrant who is just picking people at random. Who lives and who dies? You, but not you. That's, that's one picture that people think of when they think of this. And others think it just makes our own choices irrelevant. If God chose who would be adopted before the world existed, then it's all rigged. We never had a say in the matter. And that doesn't feel right. It offends our sense of fairness. It it offends our sense of personal choice. And so we want to find ways to explain this away some other way. But let me use an illustration to help us make sense of this and to explain why it has to be this way that God chooses and why that's an incredibly loving thing for God to do. We have this pastor friend and wife who decided they wanted to adopt a child. And they decided they would adopt this child before they ever saw him, before they knew his name. They just wanted to adopt someone from Russia. And so then they did the paperwork and the investigation, and his profile came before them. And so finally, uh, they, they say, okay, this is his name. And then they make the preparations to go to Russia to actually get him. Well, meanwhile, the little boy has no idea that any of this is going on. He's in an institution in an awful, awful place uh, in Russia, a place where his medical needs are not being attended to. He's got a, a cleft palate. Um, he's stunted in his growth from malnourishment and other problems, hardships. That was his life. He has no idea somebody's got his name and that anything's going to happen to him. One day, these friends of ours come for him. And they find him in the squalor of his environment and they take him home and they provide for him. They make sure that he gets the multiple surgeries that he needs. They help him get strong and they give him their family name. Gamash. Yari Gamash, short for Yaroslav. And he became our kid's childhood friend. I grew up with him. Now they already had children of their own but they wanted to include this little boy in their family as well. That explains what God does in saving people. He already has a son. He doesn't need any more children, if you will. But he wants to enfold others into his love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So he created humanity in his image, which we'll talk more about in a few weeks. But we're all like Yari in a spiritual sense. We are orphans because we've rejected the Heavenly Father by going our own way. And we live in the squalor that is our own sin. And more than that, we are like inmates on death row because our sin makes us guilty before God and we deserve the death sentence. So none of us deserves to be made holy and blameless. None of us deserves to escape judgment. None of us deserves adoption. But what God did in his great mercy and love 
knowing all of humanity would fall into sin, he chose to rescue some of us from what we deserve. He predestined some to adoption as sons. And the way we find out that we are adoption is on the day when he comes for us through the preaching of the gospel, through telling us about Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. And by the Holy Spirit, he quickens our hearts and we respond to that and say, yes, I agree. (laughs) We respond and we are saved. And we must believe it has to be our voluntary choice. We have to agree to the adoption. Our choice is necessary. But here's the reality. In our sin, we would never make that choice by ourselves. We just would never agree to it. If you keep reading in Ephesians, chapter, in Ephesians you come to chapter 2, and there Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses. Dead means unresponsive to the true God. Unable to even believe and be saved. That's what dead means. There's no life there. There's no no responsiveness. You do the CPR and nothing's happening. So what God does is he makes us responsive. By the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It's being saved through faith is the whole thing. It's the salvation and it's the faith that receives it. All of that is God's gift. That's what he has to do to dead people. He has to make you all of a sudden be alive. And he does. When he says, you'll be my son, you'll be my daughter. I know you can't do anything to get there, but I'm going to do it all for you. So when Scripture says God chose certain people in Christ before the foundation of the world, it means that he chose for some people to receive mercy. Everybody else will receive justice, but nobody receives injustice. God isn't doing anything wrong by adopting some but not others because nobody deserves it. We call this the doctrine of election because of the word elect which is also in the scriptures, and it's another word for choose. And I've taught more extensively on that when we went through Romans chapter 9 last year. So if you want to hear more on it, you can go to those messages. But here's how we say it in our statement of faith. God in his great love, before the foundation of the world, chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. God's election is entirely gracious and not at all conditioned upon foreseen faith, obedience, perseverance, or any merit in those whom God has chosen. His decision to set his saving love on the elect is based entirely on his sovereign will and good pleasure. So bottom line, salvation is all of God and all of grace first to last. We hear and we believe the call to Jesus Christ. We respond in faith, but it's only after we respond to that that we realize, how did I get here? It's because we realize all of a sudden God chose me before the foundation of the world. And if you really grasp the love and the mercy of that, then it leads to a response. It leads to praise. So having described this spiritual blessing of salvation, Paul says God did it 
to the praise of his glorious grace. That's where all this is going. To the praise of his glorious grace, he chose us. He predestined us. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. So it leads to worship of this God who's been so gracious and merciful to us. And that means that God has a deeper purpose beneath the immediate purpose of saving people from his sin, from our sins. And that's the second point. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works. To be glorified means to receive praise and honor. To be credited with being great and doing great things. And Paul's saying that's what God intends by saving people from their sins. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. That's also his purpose. We can even say that's his higher purpose because our salvation isn't itself the final goal. It leads to the final goal, which is that God is glorified. God is praised for doing it. And he will be glorified. He will be praised and worshipped when we're humbled by the reality of our bondage to sin and are grateful that he broke the chains of our hardened and unrepentant hearts. And he will be praised when we're overwhelmed by the generosity, by the mercy, uh, and the cost to his own son to make us his sons and daughters. And when we thank the Holy One for choosing us, the unholy ones, according to his great love, This is the response that's in accord with the purpose of his will. To praise God for your salvation is to be operating in sync with the will of God. And that's what Paul is doing by example in this chapter, verses 3 to 14. Um, It's just one extended overflow of praise. It's just on and on. He keeps thinking more things. More things keep tumbling out of his mouth, out of, onto the paper. Well, there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and finally get the 14, and it's like, okay, now what was I going to write about? It's just praise. It's just bubbling out of him as he thinks about all that God has done. In fact, if you keep reading to verse 14, you see two more times where he punctuates this list of spiritual blessings with this phrase, to the praise of his glory. It's in verses 12 and 14. That's what the blessing should produce. So our happiness in being blessed is not the ultimate purpose of God's blessings. Though that is his immediate purpose. He really wants that. But the blessings are to lead to something. They are to lead to saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His ultimate purpose is to be glorified by the people that he saves. In fact, that's his ultimate purpose for all of his works in creation. All of it is a display of his glory, and he is to be praised for all his works. Let me just mention a few more texts that fill that in. Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when we see a sunset or an eclipse or amazing pictures of a black hole that were taken by 40 different observatories and it was all through a computer and now we have a picture of a black hole. When we see that stuff, what we shouldn't say is just, isn't the universe amazing? What we should say is, isn't God amazing? Because he put that there. 
And that's somehow a reflection of him. Isaiah 6.3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's no part in this world from the, from the towering clouds to the ocean depths, from the rocky mountains to the tiniest microbe, there is no place in this world where we cannot see the evidence of God's glory, of his greatness, his goodness. Isaiah 43, 7, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again, there's an affirmation that humans were created for God's glory. When we're praising him for his glorious grace, we are living according to the purpose of his will. We're operating as intended. And Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Everything exists for God's glory. And we could cite a lot of other verses. Bottom line, God's sovereign purpose, his reason for creating the universe and for choosing some to be saved is to display his glory and for that glory to be praised. Our statement of faith says it this way. From all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation in order to display the fullness of his glory. Those whom he has predestined are redeemed by Christ. God does all of this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. Now let's put those two purpose statements together into one statement, and then let's talk about the implications. Here's God's purpose for creation and for humanity. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works by the people that he chose to save. That's his purpose, to be glorified in all his works by the people he chose to save. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God, but it's the people who see that glory who give him the praise for it. And the only people who are going to do that are the people that God chooses to save from their sins, the ones that he opens their eyes to seeing God as the author as the one behind it all, as the origin of all that's beautiful and amazing, especially regarding his forgiveness through Jesus who died for our sins. We humans made in the image of God are the only ones who can recognize God's glory in the world and in salvation and praise and worship him for it. And when we're doing that, we're fulfilling the purpose for which we exist. What are the implications for our lives? Let's, let's deal first with an objection that we might have to the idea that we exist to glorify God. We might balk at that because it sounds egotistical of God. It sounds like God is all about himself. It sounds like he's a self-centered deity who bestows blessings on others just so they can praise him for it. And we think, if I did that, if, I, if that's the reason I gave gifts, if that's, if that's the reason that I use time and energy and money for other people is to, is to get praise for it, then I know that I'd be arrogant. You would know that I'm arrogant if that's all it's about. Nobody likes a person who makes everything about themselves, so why should I worship a God like that? Well, let's think it through. 
That would be right thinking if it weren't for one really important detail, which is that God actually is worthy of highest praise, and nobody else is. <laughs> for God to want his person and works to be glorified is appropriate. It is right. It is what he actually deserves. There isn't anyone outside of God who is actually to be credited for the beauty of the world and the beauty of salvation. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's where it originates. We can create things, shape things, paint things, make sculptures, write programs. We can do amazing things, but we didn't originate that stuff. That came from God, and the ability to do those things came from God. He's behind it all. He's the real source. He really should get credit. The problem with us making everything about ourselves is that we aren't worthy of everybody's praise. We aren't holy and blameless in our real lives. We grow, we change by God's grace, we sin less, we do good things, we improve, but we are just people who are here today and gone tomorrow. We're full of contradictions and limitations and sins. Honor, yes, there are people worthy of honor. But worship, no. <laughs> None of us is worthy of worship, only God is. He's the underlying cause of everything that's praiseworthy. So the heavenly host in Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's right for God to display his glory and desire to be praised for it. And the only way he will be praised for it is by saving people to the praise of His glorious grace. The alternative is that we have a God who makes everything about us. And that's a God that many people want to worship. I like a God who thinks I'm so precious, so valuable, that He was willing to pay any price for me. Even giving up His own Son for me, it feels good, it feels like love to think that I'm the most important person to God. And you can find a lot of songs in churches and on Spotify that will tell you that. I was listening to one, and I thought it was really great at the beginning. Uh, it spoke about Jesus as crucified, laid behind a stone. You lived to die, rejected and alone. And I was so moved by that picture of Jesus' sacrificial love, thinking of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Father, if it's, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. He knows he's going to die bearing our blame for our sins. He's going to go under the wrath of God. You know, he would rather not, but he does it anyway. And then he goes and he's crucified and he's put in a tomb. So like, I'm reading all that into this. And the music is great. The mood is perfect. And then the verse is followed by this one. Like the rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And my heart just sank because I thought that is not a good way to end that verse. Yes, Jesus did think of me on the cross. And 
Amen. I'm saved because he thought specifically of me on the cross as one chosen and predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world. Yes, he thought of me, but he did not think of me above all. He thought of God's glory above all. He was the perfect human doing what we are designed to do, even on the cross, which was glorifying God. In John 17, 1, right before he goes to the cross, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's what he wanted to do on the cross. Jesus' desire was that by his sacrifice, he would glorify God by saving a multitude of people who would praise God for his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved Son. What we were made for and what God restores in us by choosing to make us holy and blameless and adopted is to worship the one who is truly worth it. And we can be glad that's the way it is. Because God's purpose to be glorified is responsible for his purpose to save us. The reason he is 100% committed to making you holy and blameless before him, 100% committed to forgiving you your sins, 100% passionate and committed to loving you, the reason for that is because it is his pleasure to make you happy and receive your praises. And that isn't egotistical of God, that is love. He has made your eternal joy the means by which he gets appropriate glory. So if God's purpose is to be glorified by making us eternally happy through Jesus, can we really argue with that? (laughs) I mean, it, it means he sincerely wants you to be ecstatically happy forever. (laughs) That's only partly fulfilled in this life because it's a life full of trial and sin and fallenness. But the trajectory is with me forever, no pain, no dying, no, no anything except joy. He genuinely wants that because he is genuinely wanting glory that he deserves from his saved people. We get joy and he gets glory. And that is what God always intended by making the universe and us. Let me close with this. I started out by saying the question of what God wants is relevant for us because if we know the answer, we know what our own lives should be about. Nothing can be better than to be in accord with the purposes for which God made us. That's what it means to be fully human. That's what it means to fulfill our purpose for existence. Well, praising God for his glorious grace is that purpose. That's what we're made for. We're never fully ourselves. We're never fully alive. We're never fully dialed in to what really matters if we're not doing that. That's what it looks like to have a life full of purpose. And you can live it out whether you're educated or not, whether you're married or single, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, whether you're privileged or persecuted, whether you're famous or unknown, we can all live a very purposeful and significant life doing the will of God by praising Him, by giving Him glory. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, doesn't matter what your job is, doesn't matter your circumstances, if you do that thing out of this desire to give him glory, you're living according to the purpose of his will. And that's significant. It's what it looks like to be fully human. It's what it looks like to be like Jesus. Because that's what he did. So as believers in Christ, it's our privilege to do what Paul did in this letter. We praise him. We praise him for his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so we're going to have an opportunity to do that right away. So we're going to have the worship team come back up to do one last song. And uh, that's how we'll respond to this message. Let me just pray. We thank you, Lord, that it's not ultimately all about us. It's all about you, and that's the way it should be. But it's no, it's no hardship for us that it's that way, because that's what guarantees that you are really committed to making us, your sons and daughters, welcomed, accepted, blessed, encouraged, comforted, made happy, Thank you for that. Help us to feel it this morning and respond in genuine praise. Amen.